This is History West Midlands. A Worcester Moments podcast. Prince Arthur. One of Worcester's most significant treasures is the Chantry Chapel in Worcester Cathedral, erected by the King in memory of Prince Arthur, eldest son of Henry VII, on whom the hopes of the Tudor dynasty rested before his untimely death in 1502 at the tender age of 15. This beautiful chapel is replete with heraldic sculptures, iconographic representations of Henry VII's far-reaching plans for Arthur. Carvings of the White Rose of York, juxtaposed with the Red Rose of Lancaster, symbolised the ending of hostilities between the two families, whose wars had disfigured the two decades before Henry's victory at Bosworth in 1485. Other handsome heraldic images represented the Prince of Wales's ostrich feathers, the Beaufort portcullis, the Valois fleur-de-lis and the Aragonese pomegranate. These formed wider Tudor links to European royalty and established Arthur as a prince with royal pedigree. In marrying Elizabeth of York and fathering their young son Arthur in 1486, Henry hoped to settle the Tudor succession permanently. And when the Bishop of Worcester christened the young prince in Winchester, the baptismal name of Arthur was thought to have huge significance. The child was named for a legendary king, a paragon of generosity, affluence, courage, military success and courtliness, according to the myth-maker Geoffrey of Monmouth. So how did Arthur come to be buried in the west of England, not in Westminster? Henry VII wanted Arthur from the outset to be a part of the healing process for war-torn England and Wales. He therefore established a separate household for the boy far away from London, but in the west. Ludlow Castle would be Arthur's home for the rest of his life. It was the centre of the Marcher lands, the Welsh marches, encompassing Shrewsbury, Bewdley, Ludlow, Lempster, Hereford and Worcester, many of these forming the heartlands of the lordship of the Earls of March, the Mortimers. Queen Elizabeth, Henry VII's young Yorkist wife, was their most noteworthy descendant. The Mortimers had powerful claims to the throne through their ancestry to Edward III, and so, in locating Arthur in the marches, Henry was making explicit a strong family link to royal antecedents, as well as emphasising his own Welsh roots. It helped that the Mortimers too, quite independently, curated and broadcast their own connections to King Arthur and other legendary British figures. Henry's aim was that Arthur, guided by carefully chosen loyalists, would gain an apprenticeship in governing far from the pressures, dangers and temptations of the court in London. Henry was also mindful of the threat of an uprising which could see the whole family wiped out in one fell swoop. It was therefore important, if harsh, to separate his son from the rest of the royal family. 
In the marches, Arthur would be surrounded by people who held land and were powerful figures in the western counties. They could protect him. Here he would form a semi-independent principality, and Arthur would be slowly inducted in the ways of running his estates and dispensing justice. Then, in the fullness of time, he would be capable of assuming national kingship, being thoroughly prepared for all the responsibilities which that role would involve. He was educated as a Renaissance prince, becoming a skilled horseman and an able linguist. His command of Latin was such that he read Cicero and Quintilian in the original language. Through both he became familiar with political discourse, the construction of argument and the fundamentals of rhetoric and oratory the command of which was essential for a self-respecting 16th-century monarch. Ambassadors and courtiers commented on Arthur's social ease and on his scholarship. His upbringing could not have been more different from that of his brother. Arthur was brought up, isolated from Whitehall's court life. His curriculum was carefully planned to nurture a serious-minded statesman, familiar with administration and weighty policy decision-making. That brother, Prince Henry, five years younger, was given much greater latitude and many more social opportunities, especially with the female sex, by virtue of remaining with his parents at court. His education, perhaps short-sightedly given the rate of mortality among teenagers in Tudor England, was not geared to his becoming king his native impetuosity and willfulness were not reined in. So it was naturally on Arthur that the heavy responsibility fell of making a success of an alliance with Spain, a keystone of Henry VII's diplomatic strategy. The arrangement would do much to secure international recognition of the Tudor house, and elevate England's status by associating it with the dynamic and expansionist regime of one of Europe's newest colonial powers. Arthur's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, was conducted by proxy at Tickenhill Place, Worcestershire, in 1499, two years before Catherine, aged 16, made the arduous journey from Corona to Plymouth in late autumn 1501 for the proper marriage ceremonies in what has been described as the wedding of the century. It would later become a matter of international concern as to whether the marriage was consummated when Henry VIII married Catherine. If, as Catherine claimed, the marriage was not consummated, then her marriage to her husband's brother was indeed valid. If it was consummated, then the marriage was doomed by the impediment of affinity and broke the church's laws. Of course, none of this would have mattered had Arthur not died in Ludlow Castle in April 1502, soon after the wedding, of what appears to have been the very contagious sweating sickness, rife that year in the West Midlands. And with his death, all Henry VII's careful dynastic calculations were upended. 
a spoilt playboy with a tyrannical temperament, largely untrained in matters of state, would now inherit the throne. Although Ludlow had been his home and the administrative centre of his martyr lordship, and although extensive funeral ceremonies took place there in early April, it was decided that Arthur would be most fittingly interred at Worcester, whose cathedral provided an edifice meet for a royal prince of such rare promise. Worcester's tradesmen were involved before the solemn procession accompanying Arthur's catafalque arrived from Ludlow, Cleebury Mortimer and Bewdley. For example, Thomas Billy of Worcester provided wax enough for the hundreds of tapers needed for the hearse and the graveside mourners. Gold and silver leaf and coloured paint was supplied by Worcester traders to decorate the hearse, banners and other accoutrements. They were worked by carpenters and painters and chandlers and metal workers. They were sometimes directed by specialist painters and armourers from the court. All engaged were contributing to a calculated manifestation of dynastic power, for it was important that the message that Tudor kingship had style and substance be reinforced. It was the more important because both Henry VII and Elizabeth stayed away, partly to underline that Arthur was a prince in his own right in his own lands, and also because the sweating sickness seems to have infected Worcester too. On April the 25th, the procession arrived at Worcester from Bewdley. The city friars met the procession at the north gate, and then fresh horses drew the hearse through streets lined with burgesses and commoners down to the cathedral. Here, the vicar-general of the absent Bishop of Worcester, accompanied by the staff and children of the cathedral community, met the cortege in the churchyard. The coffin was then borne through the cathedral close and on into a cathedral illuminated by 1,068 lights, where it was carried up to the chancel. On the first night there was a service with the Magnificat and Benedictus sung in the Lady Chapel, and on the next morning large numbers reassembled to hear Masses of Our Lady, the Trinity and Requiem. Various heraldic ceremonies then culminated in a spectacular piece of theatre, one memorably recreated in 2002 in the cathedral's service marking the 500th anniversary of the event. For Lord Gerald Fitzgerald, Arthur's man-at-arms, rode the prince's horse down the aisle to be received by the abbot of Tewkesbury in the choir. Fitzgerald was wearing Arthur's full armour and carried his pole-axe. The horse bore ceremonial trappings beautifully embroidered with Arthur's arms. The emotional climax was reached with the laying of the prince's body in the grave, an event accompanied both by rising intensity in the singing and the imprecations and by an outbreak of weeping and wailing. An observer commented that he had a hard heart that wept not. After a series of offerings made to the coffin, after the dispensing of alms and the preaching of a sermon, anthems were sung by the congregation while the three bishops in attendance sensed the coffin. 
At each Kyrie eleison the cry went up for Prince Arthur's soul and the soul of all Christian souls, Paternoster. At the culmination of the service, the household officers broke their staffs of office and threw the pieces onto the coffin. This highly dramatic act symbolised the disbanding of Arthur's household and marked the tragic ending of a promising life. His early death is one of those events which prompts historians to ponder on what might have been. If Arthur had survived and lived on into adulthood, English history would have been very different. He and Catherine might well have had children to sustain the Tudor line. Prince Henry, Duke of York, would not have become king to wreak havoc on the Catholic Church and the religious houses. Given what we know of Arthur's temperament, England might well have avoided most of the wasteful wars to which his brother Henry later so willingly committed it. But of course, had Arthur survived to succeed Henry VII, he would have been buried in Westminster Abbey, not Worcester, and that splendid late Gothic chantry chapel would not have seen the light of day. Music